Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come together today. God, today as we focus on Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, I pray, God, that we can have a clearer vision of him so that, as we mentioned last week, we can follow him more faithfully. Uh, But God, I also pray that uh, we can have a bigger vision of him so that we can better understand uh, the everyday things going on in our lives and in our world. Um, Father, I pray that, uh, that you will find us faithful in this study, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, somewhat of a recap from last week. Again, we've done a little bit of that. Uh, the first thing in your handout that you notice is we talk about the circumstances of the seven churches. And we're not going to get into depth on this because we will do that in two weeks when we deal with chapters two and three. But if categorically we were to put all seven churches into three areas of, of conflict or circumstances, uh, these would be the three words you could substitute some others uh, that I would put them under. And so they are dealing with one or more of these elements. And we kind of said last week they're either being pushed or they're being pulled. They're being pushed by persecution or seduced by culture. This is maybe another way of of categorizing that. Number one is this word complacency. And I think briefly we mentioned that last week. Again, that idea that in faith I'm just going to sit down and the word that I would use is comfortable. Uh, In ministry in Illinois, one of the the sermon series that I did was um, a sermon series called Get Uncomfortable. Uh, Because I feel like uh, as a culture, that's one of the things that we actually, uh, I'm just going to say worship is that we are always moving in the direction of what's going to make us most comfortable. And if something is difficult or hard, I teach students at college, if something's difficult or hard, we might even navigate and take a different class from a different professor. Uh, we, we tend to be like water. We tend to take the path of least resistance. And, uh, and so get comfortable. Well, the church is there. Um, some of them are struggling with complacency. They have fallen asleep uh, in their faith. Second word is the word compromise. We've mentioned that last week. The idea that they're compromising on their faith, they're compromising uh, their witness. And number three is this word conflict. Again, you could put persecution there. Or internal conflict, false teaching, uh, could fit in that. So if, if these are the circumstances, Revelation, and this goes back to your question before we open your prayer. What is the purpose of Revelation? How does it play a role in everyday life? Why is Revelation here when we already have the Gospels and other things? And I think one of the the reasons why the gospel is here is to give us a bigger picture of Jesus than even what we get in the gospel so that we can have a better understanding of what's going on in our world and a a stronger ability to navigate through that and to be faithful through that. So so I think a lot of it is, and this is where we're going to land today, this bigger picture of who Jesus is. Uh, So the question becomes this, have you ever walked through circumstances in your own life, in your own faith, where you've needed a bigger picture of Jesus? And, and obviously, categorically, uh, this is for you to fill out. And maybe it's something you're walking through right now. But I know that this is true. There are times in life, for instance, for me right now, at times it's parenting. And, and you've heard me tell stories already about my three kids. Um, there are times where I go, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I'm not big enough, even though my kids think I am. Um, I try to explain to my younger daughter, or, or to, my, to my oldest daughter, um, your dad is figuring this out sometimes on the fly. Like, we're trying to navigate this and trying to decide, it wasn't very long ago that dad was your age, just a little kid, or even a college student, it wasn't very long ago we were your age. 
So there are circumstances where we do not see ourselves as capable, but we need to have this bigger picture of who Jesus is. And so if, if I'm going to have you write down kind of this lesson in a sentence, which is what you get a lot at CCO, by the way. You get a lot of sermons in a sentence from DeFazio and Mark Christian. Here is the, the sermon in a sentence or this lesson in a sentence. We need a bigger view of Jesus so we can have a better view of our circumstances. We need a bigger view of Jesus so that we can have a better view of our circumstances. And the reality is, whether we're going through pain and suffering, sickness, or we're walking through a time of financial difficulty, we've been let go from a job, we're facing retirement, and we haven't put as much into retirement as we needed to, Um, we're facing a time of relational conflict, Either any of those circumstances, and maybe it's the three categorical ones we've already talked about, complacency, compromise, and conflict, um, in any of those, what we need as a people is a bigger view of Jesus so that we can have a better view of those circumstances. And, and so that's where we're going to start today in Revelation chapter 1, is saying John and his listeners needed this view needed to expand the horizons of how they saw Jesus. And so notice what happens, and I just want to talk structure of the book for just a moment. Notice some things that happens. Chapter 1, we get this bigger view of Jesus. And that leads us into chapters 2 and 3, which is where we see the circumstances of the seven churches. Don't miss that that is very much on purpose. And then we're going to come to chapters 4 and 5 where we see God and Jesus on the throne. And the Holy Spirit's there as well. The Holy Spirit, um, just like how he works in our own lives, seems to be a little bit behind the scenes, but always at work. And that's all the Holy Spirit is, often in our own lives. Like, we don't always know how he's working, but he's always at work and always amongst us. So chapter 5, we have this again, this bigger view, God and Jesus on the throne. So we have this bigger Jesus. And then we go into chapter 6 through 8, and we're just going to say 8, 5 right now for our next section. And we're going to start to see these horses come out with plagues and death and war. And we'll get into that when we get into it. But again, it's very much circumstances going on on earth. And so notice this weaving between God, this picture of God and Jesus And this picture of our circumstances we have to deal with every day. And by the way, I feel like uh, my view is is that 6 through 8, 5 are just common occurrences that happen in our world. War, famine, sickness, death, plague. We deal with this. But the question becomes, is God still in control? And 4 and 5 sets the stage for us. So again, we need a bigger view of Jesus so that we can have a better view of our circumstances. And I want to think um, specifically about the author of Revelation for just a moment. Um, This character by the name of John. Uh, John, the disciple of Jesus. Um, If you know John's story, you know that he and his brother were followers of Jesus. Uh, Fairly common, ordinary men when it came to like, Works, work life and upbringing and those types of things. Um, I'm looking forward to in May. I told some of you last week I'm backpacking through Galilee for 10 days with Mark Moore. And I'm looking forward to kind of just walking on the same dirt as Jesus especially, but even these disciples. We're going to take a boat into the Sea of Galilee. I'm looking forward to that. But that's his earthly life. Very much planted two feet on the ground, earthly kind of guy. And James and John, a couple different times, um, find themselves, I don't know, in trouble a little bit with Jesus. But we see very much that they're very human. Um, There's the time where they wanted to be greatest. They wanted to have the greatest seats next to Jesus. And in fact, one of the Gospels tells us they send their mom or she go. And 
there's this interaction of who's going to be the greatest. John was actually having this great view of himself, this big view of himself in that moment, when what he actually needed was a bigger view of Jesus. And what I want us to do for just a moment is, is think even bigger in Revelation. Think about John's life and how over the course of his life, Jesus is revealed greater and greater and greater, in greater and greater ways. So John is called, come follow me. Okay? You don't have to know a lot of details about his story, but you know some of the stories about Jesus. One of the first interactions, they're in a boat, there's a storm, Jesus is asleep. Rabbi, don't you care? They wake him up. He calms the waves and the storm. Who is this man who has such authority to calm the waves? That, that in a way, is John getting this glimpse. It's not, it's, it's a, I'm saying vision, but I'm not meaning dream. I'm, it's a glimpse of Jesus being bigger than, than what he thought he was at first. And then there's the feeding of the 5,000, which has a lot of Old Testament roots of like God feeding the people of Israel in the wilderness, manna in the wilderness. Jesus is a little bit bigger than what I thought he was. Then there's the transfiguration, which is kind of this weird moment. It's right after Peter's confession, we believe you're the Christ. And, and right after that moment, John, just three of them, um, Peter, uh, James, and John, go up and uh, they, they go up to the mountain and they're able to see that Jesus uh, changes into bright white and he walks with Moses and Elijah and Peter says, you want us to build a tent? It's kind of this weird moment. But what's happening there is a little bit of like a glimpse. Jesus says, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. It's a little bit of a glimpse that Jesus is bigger than what he thought he was. In fact, at first, I think they thought maybe Jesus was like on par equal with these. Um, and then God's voice speaks in, this is my son, listen to him. Okay, no, wait. Jesus is categorically different than Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah represent in that moment the law and the prophets. They're, they're, they are representatives of the whole old covenant. And, and Jesus stands with them and yet over them. Then there's a moment, and I, I thought about this before I put it on. Is the Passover meal a moment where John's vision of Jesus is expanded? Well, Jesus, first of all, washes their feet. That, that, in a weird way, almost instead of bigger view of Jesus, this humble view of Jesus is still bigger view of Jesus. It's, it's bigger than how they thought the Messiah would act. And so that expands his vision. But also when Jesus says, this is now my blood, this is now my, my body, my blood, that, that changes everything about the Passover meal. It's, again, expanding who Jesus is. Of course, the crucifixion, resurrection. And now we have this vision in chapter 1, this, these visions that come in the book of Revelation. John is now old. Now, I know this about my life. Old is a moving definition, right? I remember when my mom turned 30 years old. She had me when she was 18. And, um, and she was as old as Domino's Pizza. They had a 30-year box uh, that they would deliver the pizza in. And I said, Mom, you're as old as Domino's Pizza. And, you know, of course, I thought that was ancient back then. Um, but now that I'm on the other side of that, getting close to, to 40, uh, I know that, ah, 40 is, I love 40s. In fact, I'm looking forward to my 40s. Uh, 50, maybe 60 is now, I mean, and, and I also know people who are like 60, no, 80. Uh, I did a funeral for a lady who's 103 years old. And when I did the funeral for her, I, I walked through all of the things that had been invented in her lifetime. Quite, quite a few things, like zippers, Ziploc bags, frozen foods. I mean, quite a few things. Uh, and this was still about eight, nine years ago. But her daughter flew out from North Carolina, South Carolina. Her daughter was around 83. And in my own brain, I was thinking, those two are the same generation. And the reality was, no, they weren't. John is pushing, and some people estimate, in his 90s here. That's, that's really old, first century. He's seen a lot. 
feasting a lot. That means he was also most likely fairly young uh, when he was with Jesus, which fits the bill of, of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was only in his 30s, so it makes sense that he would have guys following him who are younger. And so John has seen quite a bit. But notice this, never in John's life does he stop needing a bigger view of Jesus. That's really important for us. John is now late in his life and he still needs a bigger view of Jesus. And also the church is never in, in, never ceases to be in need of a bigger view of Jesus, no matter how established they are. Uh, one of the churches he writes to is the church in Ephesus. Like, you know it from like Ephesians and Paul. There's a lot of history behind Ephesus. It's, a, I mean, it's one of those churches that like you think about churches all over the, the world or all over the country, you go, that is an established church. And guess what they need? Because of their complacency, they need a bigger view of Jesus. So I just want to even navigate this ourselves and go, if this is true for John, if this was true for the churches, can it also be true for us? Can we, in our phase of life, still need this vision to be expanded um, as we walk through whatever is ahead of us? So I want to um, you know, take this and kind of use that as our framework for today. Um, I also want to talk about this. In chapter 1... In chapter 1, we hear a little bit of an Old Testament echo uh, that we have heard before uh, from other places of of God commissioning a prophet or God calling someone. uh, And in doing so, he gives them a bigger glimpse of himself. So part of it is John, he's tasked with this task of sending this message out to the people. But before he does that, God says, "But, but I'm big enough. It's not about you. It's about me. So it's kind of like Moses in the burning bush moment. Moses, I am who I am. And yes, you're not able to speak, but I am who I am. But we also have this in Ezekiel. We have this in Jeremiah. We have this in Isaiah. And and so very much there's an Old Testament connection of a commissioning text or a calling text uh, where John is going to be called on similar to a prophet or similar to an Old Testament teacher. um, And that calling comes with a bigger view of who Jesus is. Um, Let me also uh, turn, before we get to the text, turn the board around and uh, say this. We're going to see some pictures from the Old Testament of who Jesus is and what he looks like. Um, Some of these pictures are a little bit foreign to us because of how they're described. For instance, when they say sash, when they say linen, some of those things don't mean a lot to us. But, but I want us to have some pictures in mind that we're going to see fleshed out in this chapter. And then we're going to read chapter 1 together without stopping, just to kind of hold it all together. Um, here's some things I want us to look for. Number one, look for this idea of uh, Jesus being, and I'm just going to put the word victorious, victorious king slash Messiah. So victorious king slash Messiah. And, and some of this we're going to see throughout this book. And, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. But here's the irony of this. The irony of Jesus being a victorious king slash Messiah is what? Who is actually on the throne on earth? So if you go to chapters 2 and 3. Caesar is on the throne. So as we weave these together, if Jesus is king, king of kings, lord of lords, that means something about what's going on on earth with Caesar being king. Okay? So there's the irony is that Caesar is king. Now we're also going to see a picture of Jesus being a serving, a serving priest. And what's the irony on earth about a priest in a temple? Well, we mentioned last week just briefly, and this goes back to our background study, is that most likely Revelation is written after 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple. The irony is there is no temple. 
The irony, the irony for the readers would be, Jesus looks like a priest, but there's not a temple. There's some promise found in that. But notice again, we have this heaven-earth connection. So on earth, these are the things going on. Caesar is king. There isn't a temple. There's not a place to make sacrifices. But when we have this, earth, this heavenly connection, we recognize, no, God is still king. And Jesus is still serving in the temple. And, and still interact, God is still interacting amongst his people. We're going to see some promises like that. Uh, the other thing might be that you can see that Jesus is equated with, uh, very much so, God and pictures of God from the Old Testament. Specifically, a few texts. And, and we could dive into these and get incredibly complicated, but I'm going to throw a few of these out there for some of you who want to dive deeper. Two of them that become the major background for this chapter are Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel, oops, Daniel chapter 7 and Je- Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10. In both of those chapters, there is a picture of uh, one who is seated on the throne, an ancient of days. He has white hair, and, and there's also a picture of a son of man. And Jesus picks up on that phrase. You know he says, the son of man will, and he uses that phrase of himself. Well, in Daniel chapter 7 and 10, these are the pictures. God is still king, and there is still something going on when it comes to worship and temple imagery. Because the temple is still destroyed, it possibly is being rebuilt again in chapter 10, but Daniel's still in Babylon and and Persia. In Daniel chapter 7, God is going to judge and figure this out. So we could get incredibly complicated, but what I want us to see is that both priest and king imagery have Old Testament echoes coming out of that chapter, again, from a people who were uncertain and living in times of uncertainties. People who needed a bigger view of God to have a better understanding of their circumstances going on. We're in captivity. Is God on the throne? We're in captivity. Is, does God still, is he still amongst us? And so to do that, let's, um, let's dive into this. There will be some things we won't understand, and, uh, and we'll try to pick up some of those pieces as we go along uh, after we read it. Let's read this. Chapter uh, 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, I'm not going to land here very long. Keep note of this phrase. It's going to occur several times. One of our times, it's going to skip out on that last part of the phrase, who is to come. So it's going to say who is and who was. And the insinuation is going to be, he's come. It's going to skip out on that second part. So notice that phrase, because John's going to weave it throughout these visions. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We're going to have to ask that question in just a moment. Who are these seven spirits? Or who is the seven spirits? Is a better question, perhaps. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And if you're writing in your handout, underline that verse. We're going to come back especially to this verse. If you're, if you're looking on your devices, no big deal. But we're going to come back to verse 5 for quite a bit of content today. So, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And he made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold... He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord. And you know that's A and Z in the Greek alphabet. I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, which very much is a, a terminology that says I'm in charge of everything. Okay? And so it's a technical term. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, This is the other verse I want you to underline because we'll come back to it just for reference sake with your eyes or just put it in your pocket. And remember, we're going to come back to verse nine. I was in the spirit, which is another way of saying I was I was having a vision. Okay, so, so Peter has a vision as well in the book of Acts. Uh, this is a way of, of describing that. And notice what day it is. I, it was on the Lord's day. So some commentators ask this question. Was John already in a posture of worship and prayer when this vision? Sometimes the best way to interact with God is just to be ready for God to interact with us. And, and that's part of the reason why you're here today. Is you want God to interact with you. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard from behind me a voice like a trumpet. Uh, I used to play the trumpet, by the way. Trumpets can be loud, and, uh, and, and they, can, they can get your attention. Um, I, a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And these are our seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And notice that voices have people behind them. And so I turned to this voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, instead of a person, I saw seven golden lamp, golden lampstands. We're going to come back to that symbol. It's vitally important. And in the midst of, I would circle, highlight, underline, anything you can. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. And here's our Daniel 7.10 connection. He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Very much a priestly garment. And even in the Old Testament, priests and kings, those images can kind of get blurred together because sometimes the priests, especially after the Davidic line or David's line, after David's line, sometimes priests were the kings. And even with David, sometimes he does some priest-like things. So those lines are a little bit blurry uh, compared to how we would normally perceive them. Um, And so he's going to look like a priest slash king here. He had a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white because after all, God is older than what I am and he knows more. Age brings that, right? The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like, notice this phrase, they were like flame of fire. Now, this is right out of Daniel 10, 6, by the way. And, and when we see eyes of fire, what that means is a couple different things. Number one, he sees everything, which is a big theme in the Old Testament. Eyes are always pictured around images of God, like the wheels of God in Ezekiel under his throne all have eyes. A lot of his angels or cherubim have eyes on them. And, and part of that is God sees everything. And I have to remind my kids of this sometimes, right? Like mom and dad, we know when you're lying. Like we can see right through. Well, this is true of God. But also, it is a symbol of judgment. So let me add a third um, element to this. Not only king, priest, but the third element we want to add is this word judge. And this is still from um, Daniel chapter 7 and 10 as well. In fact, at the end of one of the visions in Daniel 7, books are opened. Oh, we hear those books later on in Revelation. You know, the book of life and also the books that seem to indicate um, what we've done and who we've been. 
His feet, this is a little bit odd. Um, It is still from Daniel 7 as well as other places we see visions of this. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This seems to be symbolic of his strength and ability to stand unwaveringly. Like nothing's going to knock him down. That seems to be what's going on behind that image coming from the Old Testament. His voice was like the roar of many waters. So like trumpet, like roar of many waters. Again, Old Testament very much feeds into this. In his hand, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Now we need to ask, so we have seven spirits, we have seven lampstands, we have seven stars. What are these? What's going on here? From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We're going to see that again later. Um, But one of the things we recognize is kind of like his eyes. This sword is a sword of judgment. It's not literally a tongue that's a sword. I mean, I can't, I don't even want to stick out my tongue, right? His words, as judge, bring judgment. When he says something, it's as good as done. And so we're going to see judgment in this book. We need this bigger view of Jesus, of a king who's victorious, Messiah, but also a priest, um, but also a judge. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, you would too. In fact, everyone does in the Bible. When they see him for who he is, even when Jesus does some miracles, his disciples Say, get away from me, I'm unclean. Um, When you see an angel, even at times, you fall down. You realize your humanity. So notice notice what happens. John, in the gospel, says, I want to sit at your right, and I want want my brother to sit at your left. Or vice versa, we want to sit at your right and left. I I am big enough, like my little kids right now, my three-year-old daughter. I'm big enough to sit at the table without my high chair. Right? And sometimes what she needs to recognize is, no, actually, when you fell out of your chair, that's a sign that you are not. Right? In this moment, as John falls down, it's a sign that, no, in my humanity, I am not as big as Jesus. And, and I am not worthy of setting his right and his left. And so he falls down as though dead. But he, in the same way we see in, in Daniel chapter 10, in the same way we see, we see in Jesus' ministry, he laid his right hand on me. This is the same right hand that in his sovereignty is holding up these seven stars. So in strength, he reaches down and lays his hand on him. Um, there's an old country song called Daddy's Hands, by the way. That's kind of a neat old country song. But it talks about Daddy's hands are strong, but at the same time gentle. And, and there's some of that going on here. And he says to me, fear not, I am first and last. Similar to Alpha and Omega, by the way. In other words, I'm in charge of the whole story. I was there and I will be there. Fear not. Um, and, and at times, that fear not is the thing we need to take out of this text. In order for us to not have fear, we don't need a bigger view of ourselves. We need a bigger view of Jesus. And I've gotten that wrong so many times. Because I think we're a culture that tends to feed that lie, even to our kids. Like, you're good enough, you're strong enough, just think that you can. Sometimes you need to know, you're not. You're broken. You're inadequate. But he is big enough. That's why one of my prayers I pray for my son at night. Uh, right now, he's, again, seven. Um, uh, we have this tradition. He's my accountability partner to pray for him um, because he's a routine kid. Um, he, everything has to be in order for bedtime. Like two stories, mom sings the exact same two songs, and then I come up and pray with him. And if for some reason I've forgotten to pray, he'll yell downstairs, Dad, you've got to pray with me. Okay. So I know he's a routine kid. And so I pray pretty much the same prayer every night. Um, sometimes I'm grumpy, and sometimes I don't want to pray. He still reminds me. And there's something about that that, by the way, has to change my attitude. Not a bad thing. And so I come up to bed. And my prayer for him almost every night is, God, help Sawyer to be strong and courageous. He's a strong little kid. But then I ask him after the prayer's over, how does God help you to be strong and courageous, Sawyer? Is it because you're strong and courageous? Or is it because, and he knows the answer, because it's out of the book of Joshua. 
I'm strong and courageous because he is with me. Well, he's afraid of the dark right now. So I, I want this to be something that's so ingrained in him that as he has, and I'm just going to say more legitimate fears, maybe fear of the dark when you're a little kid's legitimate. Maybe some of our fears as adults aren't really legitimate after all. Anyhow, like some of our worries and anxieties that are coming for the next day. But I want him to know why, how can we be strong and courageous? Why are we strong and courageous? Not because of our bigness, but because of his. And so we fear not because he is first and last. Verse 18, I am the living one. I died. There's a whole story in that, isn't there? Called the Gospels. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys. We're going to come back to these keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Some have taken this verse to be an outline of the book. Um, more than anything, I believe these are just elements that are true of these visions. Like most prophecy in the Old Testament, some of the things that are said are, here's what's going on right now, here's some things that are going to take place, here's some things that are going to take place later. Jesus does this when he's talking to the disciples. Stones are the temple, they're not going to be, they're, they're not going to left standing. He's talking, about, uh, he's talking about AD 70. But then he says, but about that day, no one knows the hour. And he talks about things that are going to take place re- now, things that are going to take place a little bit future, and things that are going to take place way out there. And so Revelation has some of that element to it as well. Uh, and then verse 20, 20, mystery. As for the mystery of the seven stars, I, I love how this happened for us. Um, early on in Revelation, uh, we have kind of like Jesus with the parables on the disciples. Okay, before we all get lost, I'm just going to lay this out for you. As for that mystery, I'm just going to lay the cards on the table and tell you what they are. So we're lucky here. The symbols are given their meaning for us. Uh, as for the mystery of the seven stars, you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we go, well, that didn't help clear a whole lot up. Because now you're saying every church has its own angel. And we could, get, we could go a lot of places with studies of angels. We could probably even go out to Precious Moments Chapel and, uh, and have some pictures of angels if we could. And that's not to make fun of that. But it is to say this. We don't know a lot about angels. Jesus seems to indicate that children have an angel. There's, there's some things that take place. In Daniel 7 and 10. There, there seems to be a war going on with Michael the archangel standing up for God's people and the angels or the demonic forces uh, that are with Persia and Babylon and their enemies. There's a lot more going on behind the veil, behind the curtain. The revelation just kind of lets us peek through a little bit. But we do see that these churches have representatives that speak on their behalf but also speak to them. And you know that angels, um, in essence, are God's messengers, they take messages back and forth. They speak and are spoken. And, and so we don't know how all of this works, but here's what we do know, is that each of these churches has protection, A, and number two, has God speaking into their life and is listening to them. And, and so this becomes a reinforcement of that fact. These seven stars uh, in my right hand. Uh, in fact, even stars is interesting. So to get super complicated with this. Um, there were seven known planets that you could observe uh, by the naked eye. And so there were lots of speculation about these being spiritual, heavenly connections. And, you know, from, you know, ancient astrology, there would be some of that. Well, there's lots of speculation, um, especially when Israel spent time in Babylon. Lots of astrology in Babylon. And so some interesting things here uh, with this number seven. Uh, but with this, I think uh, he emphasizes this fact that there is an earth-heaven connection. Even though you are seven churches on earth, you have representatives in heaven. There's a heaven-earth connection, always. Always going on. And maybe that's even what Jesus does. Even these little ones have a heaven and earth connection. 
And you always, uh, it is always known what you're doing and how you're doing. And, and there's always this ability for you to speak and be spoken to uh, on behalf of heaven. Um, and then we come to these seven golden lampstands. And, um, and, and we recognize that the seven gold, so seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Last phrase, the seven lampstands, they are the seven churches. So here's what I want to do. Is I, I want to give you a little bit of a picture. I'm running out of whiteboard space without an eraser, so I'm just going to erase it, do the no-no thing, and erase it with my hand, right? Um, a Kleenex would be fantastic. Not a but thank you. Okay. Okay, so if we're going to talk about lampstands for just a moment, now one of the things we need to understand is, like, where does this symbol come from? And... And one of the things you might know, um, and if you don't, it's okay, is that in the temple, uh, there were these lampstands. And maybe you've seen these as menorahs, right, during Hanukkah. Uh, so there were lampstands. And, and very much these lampstands had quite a bit of symbol. Um, I'm going to attempt to draw one, but it's going to be rather difficult, right? Um, so these lampstands had, and it's probably the best way to do it, had seven lamps on top of them. Okay. Um, so these, they had seven different lamps on top of them. You can kind of picture the flame here, uh, and they burned oil. That's really a pathetic flame, but hey, that's going to work. Um, and so they burned oil. And in the original tabernacle, there was one of these. But when Solomon built his temple, of course, the tabernacle was now expanded out to the temple complex. It was bigger. Furniture grew. Uh, the amount of furniture grew in it. Uh, in Solomon's temple, there were ten of these, ten of these lampstands inside that temple. Um, if you go to Rome and you look at the, what's called the Arch of Titus, uh, if you go there and you look on the inside, there's a fresco that's there uh, that depicts the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. You could Google it later on today if you wanted to. And on that fresco that depicts the, the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, um, someone is carrying this out of Jerusalem and, and has claimed it basically as treasure of, of that war, of that conquering. And, and so this very much is um, symbolic of the temple, but also has deeper, uh, I don't mean deeper as in secret, but had layers of symbol beyond that. For instance, the fact that it gave light symbolized the fact that God is the giver of light, that he is dwelling with us. And, and we know this, that light does seem to symbolize someone's home. I mean, you know that, like trick-or-treat time, right? You don't go to that house, why? Because the light's off. No one's there, or they don't want you to be there, or you don't want to be there, right? Um, and, and the same thing is true uh, when it comes to, you know, Christmas time. You kind of know, oh, our neighbors must not be, they must be traveling. Their lights haven't been on for a few days. Well, this very much symbols the fact that God was present with his people. It also symbolized the fact that, that God's people were a light to the world. Jesus picks up on the metaphor of light, and you know this, we're supposed to be light, to be a lamp. But the other thing that's interesting to me is that the priest, the priests uh, who attended the temple, one of their major duties was to make sure that these never went out. So they would cut the wicks and attend to them and keep them full of oil. They would make sure that these lamps never went out. Now, instead of one tabernacle or ten temple, there are seven of these. And John tells us, or the vision tells us, um, that these equal the seven churches. And we know that seven churches... Um, number one, are supposed to give off light to the world around us. Um, think about some of these layers. Number two, um, these seven churches need a priest to minister to them and help them to continue to shine their light. They can't do it on their own power. And so we're going to pick up on that. They, they need someone dressed like a priest to come and tend and be amongst them and to keep this light going. But we also have these seven spirits. We have these seven spirits. 
And in the Old Testament, in Zechariah 4, in Zechariah 4, which again, you don't have to write all of these down, Zechariah 4, there is a picture of one lampstand and a vision Zechariah has. And in that, these seven lights on this are the Spirit that is dwelling with them. And that's where we get the, the, the verse that sometimes remember is, By my Spirit, saith the Lord. Well, these little lights symbolize the fact that it is God's Spirit shining through us. Now, I want to I do this. Here's what I want to say. There is no temple. However, both Jesus and Paul have taught us some things valuable because there is a temple. In fact, Paul's one who says, you, you are the temple. You are the temple that shines the light in the world. The spirit dwells within you. The spirit dwells within his seven churches, seven, again, representatives of all churches. The spirit dwells within you. And wherever you go, kind of like that tabernacle that every time they picked up, they'd move on and God would go with them. Wherever you as a church, wherever you as a people go, God's spirit goes with you and shines through you. And he is always with you. That's a huge thing. And in fact, that's a, it's a major picture for us to understand when we're going through life circumstances is that we have this Jesus who is always not only with us through his spirit shining through us, but also attending to us. And, and so we have this image of lampstands that is there. Um, so here's what I want to do during the last part of our, our session today um, is I want to, to open up these uh, pictures of Jesus. And I just want to go back and highlight some mi- minor nuances um, that we have already seen. And this won't take us very long. Number one. Jesus is pictured in this chapter as a faithful witness. A faithful witness. Um, He walked where we walked. In other words, he's going through some of the things that we're going to go through or have gone through. Um, So look back at verse 1-5. It says he was a faithful witness. He was first born from the dead, which implies what? He died. Okay. John, later on in verse 1-9, says, um, I was your partner in tribulation. But also, it was on account of the testimony or the witness of Jesus. So one of the pictures we have here is that Jesus already did what he's calling us to do, which was to be a faithful witness, even to the point of tribulation, even to the point of the cross, even to the point of death. Jesus was a faithful witness, firstborn from the dead. Now, we can flip over to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame him. How do we overcome? They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, that outline is the same as Jesus described in verse 5, John described in verse 9, and how we're supposed to live as well. So notice this big picture. When you're struggling to witness in this world that is either at conflict with you, complacency with you, or compromise with you, you be faithful as a witness, even to the point of death, because that's how we overcome. Why? Because that's how Jesus overcame, was through a cross and a resurrection. So here's our response, endure or overcome. Each of these boxes will have a response that will be a theme as we see throughout the rest of the book. Endure or overcome. At the end of each of the seven churches, the seven lampstands, Jesus is going to say, to the one who overcomes or endures, the one that's victorious, those, those words are synonymous. So endure or overcome. Here's vision number two. We've mentioned it briefly. Jesus, the victorious king or the Messiah. And, and the lesson here is that he's in control. He is in control. Verse 5. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse 9, John reminds us that he's not only our partner in tribulation, he's our partner in the kingdom. Jesus is on the throne now, reigning now. Like he said at the end of the book of Matthew, um, I'm I'm about ready to go, but he says all authority in heaven and on earth. Here, Here are the earth-heaven connections. 
all authority on heaven and on earth. Is Jesus going to reign someday on earth? No, he's actually reigning now. We just do not fully recognize it. And, and yet there is still this not yet. His enemies haven't yet completely been dealt with, but they are conquered. They have been conquered. And, and so there's just final judgment that awaits. Or verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. He holds the keys. And you know this. If you hold keys, you have some authority. There's certain keys that I have, uh, certain keys that I have on Ozark Christian College's campus that let me into certain doors. There's other keys I don't have because I don't have the authority. It's above my pay grade. And, and so we know this keys have authority. Well, he has the authority over death and Hades. Now, Hades in the Old Testament is not the same as what we would say hell. Uh, Hades in the Old Testament was the abode of the dead. And it was more generic. It's, it's where dead people go. And, and sometimes it would be referred to those who are going to judgment, but other times just those who have died. The book of Ecclesiastes especially uh, would be true of this. And, and so he has this, these keys over death. He, they don't, it doesn't control us anymore. He's firstborn from the dead. And we've already mentioned chapter 4 and 5. Uh, he's victorious. He's in control. He's on the throne. 4 and 5 is going to echo this. And then 1916 is going to be the final. He's going to come. He's going to ride in on a victorious horse. And it actually looks like he's already won. And on, on him is the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is in control. So what's our response? If we have this bigger view of Jesus, uh, two words I want you to put here. One is the word trust. Number two is the word wait. Wait. Trust means we believe he's in control. Wait means he hasn't yet solved it. He hasn't yet brought everything to completion. So some, some of the believers in, in later, cha- later chapters of Revelation are going to say, how long? Have you ever asked that of God? How long till this is done? And, and he's, he's going to say, wait a little bit longer. So we trust, we have patience. Uh, number three, he is the priest. He is in our midst. This is, this is that theme we've talked about with lamp stands. Jesus is in the midst of his seven churches. And he's attending to them. He knows what, that this is what happens in chapter 2 and 3. He walks, he, sit, he talks through his angel, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So he uses that, one of the seven stars, one of the seven angels, to speak to them. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, say. And so we have this, this priest that knows intimately his churches. He's attending to them. He's trimming their wick and making sure their flame is kindled. Making sure they have the oil they need. And he's making sure that, that God is worshipped. That the light of God continues to shine in this world. That is the image of Jesus is that he is with us. Now, this is a pretty big theme that God is with us. You can go clear back to the Garden of Eden. And then you go a little bit forward and you go, okay, yeah, we, we were separated. Yeah, but he never left us. We, just with our own sin, we're separated from him. Because we have this picture of the tabernacle, which is like God dwelling with his people. We talked about that last week. We have a temple. And we've talked about this theme that in Revelation, this is going to be this constant reminder. We need a bigger view of God. One of the bigger views is he is with us. He's with us every step of the way. And so what is our response? Well, perhaps because of the temple uh, metaphor, the temple imagery, we worship. Perhaps we worship. Even when it's difficult, we worship. Even when we doubt, we worship. And in that word worship, if you're talking about the, the priestly idea of worship, worship doesn't mean just sing. It also means serve. So I would put worship equals, I would put worship equals serve. And that could be singing. It could be serving and working. It could be how we live our lives. So we worship as response to the fact that Jesus is with us. And here's number four. We won't land here a long time. Um, but Jesus is the judge. He is coming soon. And he says this in verse 7 of, of chapter 1, but also it bookends the, this book. 
chapter 22, verse 7. I am coming soon. And he is coming to judge. Now, Jesus says this about his time to come to judge. You, you won't know when it's going to be. It's going to be like a thief coming in the night. Uh, we've had our house broken into it and, uh, twice uh, last, last year. Uh, we, the last one was over Christmas break. We were gone, speaking up lights off. And, uh, but we've had our house broken into twice. And both times, uh, like this, the verse of Jesus saying, I'm, I'm coming like a thief, has just been vivid in my mind. Because obviously if I knew that they were coming, I would have done something to prevent it, right? When they broke into our window of our garage, I would have put an alarm on that particular window uh, or turned on a sensor light or something like that. And now that it's happened, I'm almost acting like I can prevent it again. They're probably never coming back. But I would act like I could. Jesus, in this, what is our response? Jesus' um, statement uh, to be ready is perhaps our response. Be ready. Be ready. Because I'm coming soon. And so we're ready, not, because, not only because we've asked him for forgiveness, but also because we're faithful. We're serving him and all of these other things. So I want to close with these last three, three statements. Um, responding to the circumstances of the seven churches. How do we respond? If it's complacency, we're going to discover that, number one, we need to stay awake. We need to stay alert. If it's compromise, we need to come out of that compromise or repent. And number three, if it's conflict, if it's conflict or persecution, we need to wait. Also, some similar, similar responses up there. This, this chapter 1 opens our vision to Jesus and says, okay, just like John, when we're walking through these things on earth, we need to realize God is bigger than what we thought he was. Jesus is bigger than what we thought he was. But he's also willing to reach down and touch John in this moment and lift him up. And I, and I want to say this. I think that picture is still a picture that not only is for John, but also for us. That fear not. And he lifts us up out of that circumstance. I'm going to pray for you, and we'll be back next week. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together today. I pray that, uh, God, you minister to us, not only through your word, not only through your spirit, uh, but, God, through each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.